This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of January 11th, 2016, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 308 of Defender Radio. I can't be sure if you heard the news, but late last year, Senate Bill S-214 hit the media. It's a bill that, if passed by both the Senate and the House of Commons, would eliminate the use of animals in testing cosmetic products in Canada. We all cheered because it's a huge win for the animals. But then we also had a good think about it. Because why are we still testing cosmetics on animals in the second decade of the 21st century? Sadly, it isn't just the cosmetics industry that uses animals to test their products in Canada. Everyone from medical researchers to veterinarians to grade 9 biology students are using animals. But they don't need to. The Animals and Science Policy Institute is a new nonprofit organization that's sole focus is to provide a critical and constructive dialogue about the use of animals in research, teaching, and testing in Canada. To learn more about this fascinating organization and the important work they'll be doing, in late December we connected with founding executive director Dr. Elizabeth Ormandy. I am surprised when I find out that animals are being used in science, really in any way at this point, uh, be it cosmetics, be it research. It's, so is like it, to me, it's surprising that in Canada in the 21st century, this is still happening. But I, I could you explain like how common is this this usage of animals in this regard? Well, the use of animals in science is incredibly pervasive. Um, there are just on just over three million animals used in science in 2013. That's the latest Canadian numbers, and the numbers are similar for the UK. They rest around four million in the UK. Um, the US, who knows, because they don't really capture their animal numbers um, in the same ways as the US, UK, and Canada. But um, estimates have put the numbers of uh, animals in the US somewhere around 25 million for an annual figure, but it's a really rough estimate, right? So yeah, animals are used for research, for basic research, for learning more about biological pathways in the body, how um, biological mechanisms work, immune function, things like that. Um, they're used for applied research to uh, study diseases and disease mechanisms and disease progression. Um, they're used in education, so they're used in high school science. We were at Science World just yesterday and there were um, young students as young as grade eight doing cow's eye dissection in a public science education place called Science World. Um, oftentimes grade 12 students will do fetal pig dissection in Canada. Um, and animals are used in the training of veterinarians and uh, doctors. They're also used for testing purposes. So once you've got your disease model, you can, it, their animals are called disease models. I don't like the terminology, but that's the way it is. Um, the uh, disease models, so the animals are used to test the safety of drugs and how well the drugs work. And so the use of animals is really 
this uh, very pervasive uh, thing in science. It's the norm. It's like this scientific norm that the way that we are curious about the world, the way that we can conduct science is to take animals apart and do harmful things to them. I, I just, I don't even know how to respond to that when you put it so simply. Um, but again, that's, that's why I'm talking to you. Um, and, and on that note, the Animal and Science Policy Institute, let's, let's, now that we've established that animals are in fact used in science, yeah. let's talk a bit about the Institute. What's, what's the story behind this new, uh, hmm. or growing organization? Yeah. Um, we actually, we founded in July. We got our certificate of incorporation in July. Uh, it was myself, Sarah Dubois, Dr. Sarah Dubois of the BCSPCA, she's their chief scientific officer, and Leslie Fox, the executive director of the fur bearer, sorry, the Association for the Protection of Fur Bear Bearing Animals. Yeah, I still can't say that um, right myself. I get paid to talk <laughs> about it for a living. So, so Sarah is a self-proclaimed intellectual matchmaker. And she is friends with Leslie. She went for dinner with Leslie and Leslie was sharing with her that she, off the side of her desk in her own spare time, she had this website called Frogs Are Cool, um, which was dedicated to um, basically explaining high school dissection and explaining that students have the right to opt out if they wish, and then offering up some resources for non-animal alternatives for high school dissection. It's a really cool website, actually. It's, it's neat. And... Um, Sarah didn't know this about Leslie, but then I'd been hired for the uh, by the BCSPCA to work on non-animal alternatives in university education at the University of British Columbia. And I was uh, hired part-time on contract by the BCSPCA to develop resources for certain courses at UBC. Um, and so when Sarah went for dinner to dinner with Leslie, they she was like you need to meet elizabeth and so the three of us got together in a room and um basically talked each other's ears off about this whole issue um animals in science broadly and um the use of animals in dissection in particular and then we had a second meeting and went for pie we went to, <laughs> we went out for pie and uh by the end of that uh, meeting, we had a proposal that we wanted to pitch to Lush Cosmetics because they have a pocket of funding in their charity prop program. So we we pitched our a project for high school dissection um, and the implementation of non-animal alternatives to Lush. They went for it, and during that process, we decided to found the Animals and Science Policy Institute, and we brought on board Marcy Potter, also from the association for the protection of fur-bearing animals, and Jeff Erton, who's from the BCSPCA. And so together, the five of us uh, put all the paperwork in, founded the organization. We've had many, many hours of meetings where we're like, what is our focus? How do we want to stand out? How do we want to be different? And so I think, for me, the main thing that I want to do differently with this organization is... Okay, I'll, I'll backtrack a little. Like, so we, I'm from the UK, and there are several organizations in the UK. Uh, so there's the Fund for the Replacement of Animals in Medical Experiments. There's the RSPCA Research Animals Department. There's the National Center for the Three R's. And those three organizations in particular actually sit at the governance table. They really are there with the governors of animals in science. So animals in research, uh, the use of animals in research is legislated in Britain. 
there's the Animal Scientific Procedures Act, and so there's the Animals uh, Procedures Committee, the Animals and Science Procedures Committee, who kind of sit and decide how to um, translate that act into action, I guess. And so uh, these organizations have a really pivotal role in policy making. And, you know, I'm here in Canada and I don't see a group that's equivalent. So there's amazing work being done by Animal Alliance, by HSI, um, by more local groups like the um, anti-vivisection organizations and individuals. So there's amazing work being done. But I actually sit on CCAC Council, so that's the Canadian Council on Animal Care. They're the national organization, they're a peer agency that set and maintain standards for the care and use of animals in science in Canada. So I sit on that council, and so firsthand I know that um, without fail, anti-vivisection groups are excluded from any kind of policy-making conversation. And what, why is that? Um, I think, honestly, I think... Um, I think the conversations make people uncomfortable. So the CCAC are a group of um, professionals. Many of them are animal researchers themselves. And so you can imagine that that's a really difficult conversation to have someone in the room who has an anti-vivisection ideology. And so what happens is, I think uh, the use of animals in science and um, is very rationalized within this kind of bubble and anyone that's speaking from outside of the bubble um, is delegitimized and um, becomes non-credible and you know hysterical overreactive irrational etc and you know there's a there's a history especially in britain there's a history of um you know uh kind of, I don't want to say bad behavior, but um, there's been some kind of, there's some incidents where, you know, there's been attacks on labs and personal attacks of it on individuals. And I think that um, the research community here are afraid of going down that route by opening up conversation with people who have an anti-vivisection stance. And so the Animals and Science Policy Institute, I really want us to um, kind of walk that middle ground a little and to be an organization who really want to push for um, a shift in the status quo, right? I really want to push for more meaningful replacement of animals in science. But to do that without being uh, antagonistic towards the research community without attacking anybody um, and to actually get a place at the governance table so that we can influence policy in in what I believe is the right direction and so um, you know I think I think that's a subtle but important difference um, in terms of what we would like to do and the political ground we would like to occupy compared with other groups who admittedly have done amazing things um, but are definitely excluded from excluded from those policy conversations and so I'd like to basically be the be the middle the middle ground well and I, I guess that's something that must come up a lot when you talk with people and and this is something I would say is don't we need to be I mean like if, if we said no more animals in research testing tomorrow and, and I am being a bit of a devil's advocate here but if we were to stop that tomorrow wouldn't that put a halt 
in cancer research and in like all, just yeah. all kinds of things. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that's also what the research community are afraid of, right? Like, I think, um, number one, it's unrealistic to ask for animal research to stop tomorrow for exactly the reasons that you just said. Um, and also, you know, we've got to bear in mind that um, there are some benefits to the use of animals in research. Now, what we're saying is we can still achieve those benefits, but let's pour our money into non-animal methods. Let's, because there's emerging evidence that using non-animal methods is actually better science. Animals are variable, they get stressed, um, they're expensive to keep. Um, I mean, these are all arguments outside of just animal welfare and animal rights issues, right? Um, there are systematic reviews coming out that show that the translation of animal models to human medicine really isn't as good as um, is claimed. So oftentimes, um, what it, what, the way that animal research is justified is to say, well, we're going to cause these harms in these ways, but the harms are worth it because we're going to achieve these benefits. So these new systematic reviews that are coming out, which have taken like a, a systematic review is basically a, a, an accumulation of studies over time. And it kind of uh, just uh, systematically goes through each. So for example, each um, study that has tested the effectiveness of a particular stroke drug in animals. And uh, it basically, amasses that data so that you're not just resting uh, your evidence on one study, you're actually collecting all the studies that have tested that drug and looking at the effectiveness of the drug over, over lots of different studies. And what, they're sh a lot, what a lot of them are showing is that, yeah, to be approved for your animal use, you, there was a claim of benefit. Okay, so these animals are going to be used, we're going to induce stroke in them, we're going to test the drug and how well it alleviates this condition. Um, and there'll be this benefit because stroke is this, uh, you know, it's a socially valuable thing to work on because X number of people suffer from stroke every year. It's really debilitating. Um, but if we can find an effective treatment, that's a great benefit to society. Now, what these systematic reviews are saying is basically the benefits have been overestimated because the translation of the data from the animal model to human clinical practice just isn't as um, predictive. So the animal model isn't as predictive as uh, one would anticipate. And so what's happening is there is basically... Um, it's basically wasting resources and animal life and researchers' time and money, taxpayers' dollars. Um, and so if we don't get that translation right, then it's basically um, animals harmed for very little payoff and money spent for very little payoff. Whereas if we invest in non-animal models that are actually more effective and more predictive, then I think that's the best, that's the better science in a lot of cases. Okay. Now in order to get those, and, and this is something that relates to uh, trap testing that was done in Vegreville, Alberta. Um, yeah, yeah, in, yeah. In order to get the, the modeling, computer modeling or whatever kind of predictive uh, uh, system you want to use, don't you need to 
test on animals. And so, and I remember reading this in, in an anthrozoology book, just in order to identify what animals shouldn't be used in testing, we have to test on them. It, it's kind of almost a catch-22 at that point. So how, how do you move from saying, well, mm-hmm. the, the mice aren't, aren't a good predictor and, and we shouldn't use them, but in order to find out what is a good predictor, we need to test. Yeah, and I think I think that's a valid point for some cases. So you brought up the fur the the fur trap testing, where um, I did I did look this up this morning. So I believe that they used data from um, previous animal research using traps, and then created computer models based on that data, so that moving forward they could use less animals. So when you're thinking though about um, bring it back to the human medicine side for a second. If you're thinking about what is the best predictive model for human physiology, I mean, surely that's humans, right? And so if we, you know, there's stem cell technology now where we can take human stem cells and make any tissue that we want. Stem cells are pluripotent. They will, they have the they have the capability of becoming muscle cells or nerve cells or whatever, right? And so um, there's just like the, the technology and technological advancements in the non-animal alternatives world are really vast. And I think that, um, you know, without without touching on anything close to Nazism and the use of humans in that kind of um atrocious science, we could actually use human cells, human tissues, even human volunteers in certain cases to um, to look at human diseases because that, that would make the most sense to me. I don't know, uh, you know, animals are, animals are um, they're different from us. Like, for example, mice don't naturally get cystic fibrosis, and if they even do, um, they uh, when they're given cystic fibrosis, their um, the way it manifests in them is very different to the way it manifests in humans. So, anything we learn from how they manage cystic fibrosis or any kind of treatment they receive for cystic fibrosis is going to be inherently flawed because it is at its root just different. Yeah. Yeah, it's just different. And there might be some kind of genetic stuff that you can do because, you know, it's a genetic linked disease. And so, you know, you might be able to look at like the genetic profile of the mouse, but it certainly won't, um, you won't be able to look at clinical symptoms in the same way, right? Like, um, yeah. Okay. And so I think, I think that just to answer your question, like, um, sure, I, I, I don't know. Like, I think um, in the, in the case of the, fur trapping there's part of me that is like okay I can understand I can understand the point right I can understand the point of like okay well we needed to use these animals to to actually move forward and um, develop computer models for me the the question is actually to take a step back and say well why do we need to do the fur trapping in the first place you know so why why do you need to do the research in the first place and so when you start from that question, then you're like, okay, well, that that creates a different set of um, further questions for me, right? 
Well, and that's something I uh, I, I want to pose to you. And this, this might be where I just sort of say it and then sit back and let you talk for 25 minutes. But uh, whenever I come against people talking about testing, talking about government policy in regards to animals, the word humane gets yeah. thrown around. And if you spent time with Leslie, you've probably heard her rant about it the same way I rant about it. Yeah. And the two of us together is just an endless <laughs> cycle of ranting. So Yeah. Um, but I mean, how do you define humane now? Because when we first started using that word, I would imagine sort of as it relates to science and things, you know, humane euthanasia, causing the least pain, the least suffering. And now with all we know about sentience and emotions and even the fact that some creatures have moral codes and ethics standing amongst themselves. Yeah. I, I, uh, do we need to redefine that term and, and really everything it impacts, including testing and, and use in science? Oh, absolutely. I think that we're learning more all the time. And, you know, I have this, um, had this conversation with one of our advisors. She's in, uh, become an expert on fish, actually. And fish are now this, I mean, for a number of years, I think it was like between 2009, 2011, they were the number one um, species, uh, not species, they were the number one type of animal used in science in Canada. And no one really gives two hoots about fish, right? Like they're, they're physically so different from us. They're, they don't, they're not very expressive in their facial expression. They're just so alien to us. And so we really don't give them the time of day in terms of acknowledging their cognitive abilities, their sentience, whatever. There's still debate in the literature over whether fish feel pain, which I think is like, why are we still talking about it, frankly? Um, but exactly, like, so when we, when we see uh, emerging academic literature on, okay, like, fish are smart, they develop complex social traditions of their own, they can, like, categorize and hold concepts in their own minds. <laughs> they can show reconciliation behavior to make amends when they've done something wrong. Um, they're just amazing, like, you know, and, and there's, I don't know, like, yeah, coming back to your, your issue with humane, I, I feel exactly the same way. Um, a lot is done, a lot of harm is done in the name of uh, humane science. And, you know, I'm an animal welfareist, I was trained as an animal welfare scholar. And I noticed in, um, I looked up the uh, human, International Humane Trapping Standards uh, Agreement that you uh, that on the international humane trapping stuff. yes yes um and i noticed that the poor welfare so you sometimes animal welfare and humane are used interchangeably right so poor welfare um was only defined in terms of physical trauma so things like you know um like broken bones, severing of tendons, like uh, things like that. There's very little acknowledgement of psychological distress or affective state. And you know, if you're an animal in a restraint trap, that's incredibly distressing, <laughs> right? Like your, your welfare is not going to be good. And that's not humane. It's not humane. Like even though the very title of those standards is like agreement on humane trapping standards, like I, I feel like there needs to be a conversation about, um, about, okay, we need to kind of have a reality check 
on the terms humane and animal welfare. <laughs> well, and that's, uh, again, when I talk with uh, trappers or uh, people who are proponents of the fur industry, they will admit off the record behind the scenes when there's beer involved that it's not about being humane. It's about being more humane or causing less harm. They, they are the first to admit that, you know what, it's not going to be pretty. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I was actually at, um, I facilitated the um, a, an expert forum in the summer on um, humane wildlife management. And we kind of, um, the group kind of agreed that the best terminology that they could use is that this is less inhumane than other methods. <laughs> it's just less inhumane. You can't say that it's humane per se, but th that group were very um, savvy and sensitive to this issue. And so they were like, okay, it's just, yeah, it's less inhumane. That's that's the best they could do at, the, at, at that group in that moment. Um, and I thought that was actually really, uh, really good to hear because oftentimes, you know, the, you know, coming back to animals and research for a second and the usual critters that you think of in terms of the rats, mice, fish, whoever, um, the the Canadian Council on Animal Care have um, you know specific in, specific guidelines on what constitutes euthanasia. So euthanasia is a good death, and um, you know could we say that that's humane? Is it humane to take the life of an animal even if it doesn't cause them? physical harm right so i think that you know may, maybe the taking of a life is the ultimate harm right and it doesn't need to be bloody and gory and cause a lot of pain to the animal losing your life the process of losing your life is probably incredibly distressing <laughs> and so um i just wonder about the terminology euthanasia and a lot of the language i'm sure you find this in the fur the fur trapping or the fur-bearing animals work that you do, um, a lot of the language is kind of a veil to the truth, you know? Like, by using the word euthanasia, I just don't know, like, whether it's ever possible to give um, a good death in a laboratory context. And, um, yeah, I, I, and especially, I know that the term euthanasia isn't used in fur trapping. You, you use, like, you know, humane, humane trapping or whatever yes and dispatched yeah is a popular and like animals are said to be sacrificed or you know terminated and the word killing is very is never used and i've been i've been in um situations where people um that i was co-authoring papers with don't want to use the word harm so there's this kind of real reluctance to acknowledge that researchers cause harm to animals even though the very ethical framework that we use to justify the use of animals in science is utilitarian and you have to weigh harms against benefits right so the ethical language is that yeah we're going to cause harm in a justified way because these benefits are what is uh the outcome right and um, I don't particularly, I, I'm not a utilitarian, so that ethical justification doesn't particularly work for me, but, um, but that's the foundation by which animal research is justified. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. 
Beaver dams help clean water, promote songbird diversity, encourage fish populations, and create better soil and a cleaner environment. Beavers are good for Canada, but will we be good to them? Find out more at furbearerdefenders.com and give a damn about beavers. First, they tear a hole in your roof. Then they get in, destroying your insulation, chewing your electrical wiring. Raccoons and squirrels are eating away at your biggest investment, your home. I am Brad Gates of Gates Wildlife Control. Don't wait any longer. Call Gates Wildlife Control. We'll humanely get them out and keep them out. We will come to your house and provide you with a no-obligation free estimate. Please visit us at GatesWildlifeControl.com or call 416-750-9453. Bearsmart.com is the most comprehensive resource on the web for all things bear. At Bearsmart.com, we work hard to ensure people and bears safely and respectfully coexist. Join us as we give bears a voice at Bearsmart.com. This is Defender Radio. We're back with more from Dr. Elizabeth Ormandy of the Animals in Science Policy Institute. Well, now, we've been talking about ethics and we've been talking about the word humane and all of this. Why is there a change occurring? I think that's the first, the first part of this sort of section is it, it, it is obvious to those of us who have chosen a compassionate life. Um, who ha- have spent time learning and educating ourselves and others. Um, and it seems kind of logical that, you know what, if there's an alternative, I'm going to do the alternative. I'm going to do the least harm, the most good. But when we're talking about science, when we're talking about big pharmaceutical companies that literally spending billions in research, when we talk about cosmetics companies that employ thousands of people, and when we talk about teaching school children, there is, th- there is this very slow but also apparent move that there is another way. There is a way to be more ethical. There is a way to be better. What do you think is sort of the the, the stem of that? Why are people moving in that direction? I think that's a really good question. I think it has a lot to do with all of the emerging evidence on how amazing animals are, frankly. It's like, you know, if things like animal research create this very interesting dilemma. (laughs) So, Animals make good models because they have capacities that are very human-like. Otherwise, we wouldn't use them for human medicine, right? We wouldn't because they would be just too different. So animals make good models because they feel pain. So we can do pain research without having to use humans, which would be very uncomfortable (laughs) uh, ethically. Um, And for, for me, it's uncomfortable to use animals, but I'm just, you know, trying to convey a social norm in in my answer. Um, So the more we can, yeah, so animals have lots of human-like qualities. Um, So the dilemma is if they have lots of human-like qualities, then surely we afford them, we need to afford them moral consideration in some of the ways that we afford humans moral consideration. Uh, Things like the right not to be tortured and harmed, so things like, um, you know, negative rights and then uh, and also positive rights. So um, having your welfare taken into consideration when we're making decisions. Um, And I think that, you know, I think just 
the power of social media. So we're in an age where information is at your fingertips. So I think that that really can help shift uh, social attitudes um, in profound ways. Uh, like, as you know, you're probably like way more familiar with the social media of uh, animal advocacy than I am at this point. And so I think that, you know, we never really had that before, right? Like we're in this just a different time in, in history where um, the dolphin killings uh, out in Japan or whatever, um, we wouldn't know about them, but now we do because we can, at a click of a button, find out that information because we're all just so virtually connected. So I think that plays a huge part, like the global communications plays a, a huge part. Um, like you said, I think that a lot of people are like, well, we didn't have alternatives before, and so it was kind of a necessary evil to uh, use animals in, in for, for cosmetics testing or whatever. Um, but now, you know, there's amazing, amazing scientists, amazing organizations that are really putting a lot of effort behind the development and implementation of non-animal alternatives and um, in all facets of science. And, and speaking of the alternatives, that's, uh, I, I think, sort of the other thing we, we do need to touch on, uh, are particularly with, with the new Senate bill that's, uh, that, that came out mm -hmm. in December. Uh, it's the, the Cruelty-Free Cosmetics Act, Senate Bill S214. Yeah. Um, and it would, uh, as noted on your blog and everywhere else, uh, uh, prohibit cosmetic animal testing in Canada, as well as the sale of cosmetic products or ingredients that have been newly animal tested elsewhere in the world. Um, and that's obviously a good thing. I, I, I it yeah. makes sense to me. I think it makes sense to pretty much everybody. But yeah. at the same time, I, I don't want my toothpaste to murder me or my shampoo to get in my eyes and burn out my retinas. Um, sure. So, you know, that I think also is a reasonable request. Uh, death by shampoo is not popular. So yeah. how do we then balance that if we're not going to test on animals and we don't want people to die horrible, gruesome deaths in my imagination as a result <laughs> uh, of malfunctioning shampoo? Yeah, so those safety tests can still be done. So just to put your mind at rest. <laughs> so where we used to do something called the Dray's test, which would involve um, dripping various substances into rabbit's eyes. There are synthetic alternatives now where you can like still do the same safety testing, still the same irritation testing. It's just not done on a live animal. And so that's where the non-animal alternatives are going. So you, there is still safety testing done. It's just not using animals. Is that is that helpful? <laughs> Somewhat. So it's, it's not it's not that the cosmetics testing is uh, is um, going to stop. It just won't involve animals in the process. Okay, and then uh, uh, continuing on my, my fun game of devil's advocacy, yeah. which is really why I do this, because um, I get to bite yeah, people. Yeah, totally. But um, uh, doctors, I, 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 you know, if I, I had sinus surgery uh, uh, in November, yeah. um, and my surgeon will have practiced this routine on all sorts of people and other things, and when he was in school, he would yeah. have done similar exploratory tests on animals. So I don't want to be going under anesthesia and be like, I've only done this on the computer. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to be the first yeah. guy where he finds out if you push too hard, he punctures through the nasal cavity into the brain. Sure. Um, and then I end up thinking I'm a rabbit with shampoo in my yeah. eye. So how, again, that's to me is what's the alternative? So, I mean, we've got medical professionals yeah. who are going to be handling lives. Uh, even veterinarians, yeah. I think, would be a fair yeah. comparison. 
So what's the what's the alternative in that scenario? So I think that you're really expressing a fear that many people have. <laughs> um, so first off, I'll say that to, it's my understanding that my homeland in the UK, no doctors are trained using animals in their in their profession. And you know what? I had surgery when I was 17 in the UK, and I was just fine. <laughs> you know. Um, so I think. Um, I think there's this real sense that a doctor would train on a computer and then go straight into being solo surgery on, on some unsuspecting human, for want of a better word, a human guinea pig, right? In reality, that's just really not the way it would happen, right? So in your medical training, I really believe you can do your medical training without using animals. Um, the dexterous manual skills that you need for things like suturing and careful um, uh, instrument use, you can practice those on bananas. Like you really don't need animals to do that. Um, there's lots of synthetic tissue these days. So the feel of pulling tissue and cutting tissue, like um, that's another component to that manual skill base. Like how, how, how much pressure do you need to put on with a scalpel? Um, things like that. So there's lots of um, mannequins and models that can simulate that. And then when it comes to actually, you know, okay, so now you want to transition from using all of these kind of myriad alternatives to actually doing uh, surgery, then that would be done as part of an internship program. So you would go in with a very experienced surgeon, you would watch surgery, you would maybe uh, do the do this the suturing up at the end of the surgery and then like during the surgery maybe um, the surgeon would say okay here take over for a few minutes I'll guide you and it's done with the consent of the patient so when I was younger I had surgery at a teaching hospital and I was asked for my consent on whether students could be present to watch my surgery and maybe perform some of the tasks during the surgery and at the time I was a wannabe vet student and so I was like absolutely go ahead right and it's completely your right as a patient to say no I want I want the top class guy right but you know there are people who are like yeah I understand the need for surgeons to train the top guy is going to be in the room he's going to be right there and and so that's that's the way I see that working so this kind of sense that someone would go from computer to solo surgery it just would never happen and it actually just wouldn't happen even if you you're you're the medical world in terms of surgery like residents and uh um, people training to be surgeons are very much guided through that process i think your first solo surgery w would be like years after you you've specialized the uh, the other one uh, that you guys look at is uh, in teaching and and for this I, I I'm thinking of the the frog jacole, what Leslie is very passionate about and this is the traditional you know dissecting a frog dissecting an eyeball in a classroom to teach young people about uh, uh, everything from cellular makeup to advanced biology to to how neurons fire so what 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 options exist for replacing that really sort of first exploration of biology. Yeah, so um, we actually are very lucky to have um, partnered, I guess you would say, with uh, a company called Frog Guts. They're down in Seattle, and they offer uh, a virtual frog dissection. It's an app that you can download from iTunes for about $5, and it goes onto your smartphone, your tablet, your iPad, whatever you like. And it's extremely high resolution. It's a CGI image of a frog. And you do the dissection on the screen. 
so you you pin you pin the limbs you take the scalpel you open up the belly and it and each, uh, each organ, you can drop a pin into an organ and then press on the pin and it opens up an, in, an information bubble about what that organ does, what's its function, and sometimes even shows histology, so what the cells look like under a microscope. So it's extremely well executed. And um, so frog guts, uh, I've been in, in talks with them. And as well as their app, um, the virtual frog dissection app they have a school subscription program where um, schools can buy a subscription from them and then get access to online virtual dissections of fetal pig um, I think there's a frog a starfish a cow's eye um, numerous things and so um, through us we're able to give um, select teachers 50% off um, off that school subscription for a year and the, the school subscription gives 500 logins per day for a year so those tools I mean I we wouldn't endorse them if we didn't really believe in them and we were actually at science world yesterday um, the tell us world of science here in BC it's a science education kind of uh, museum I guess you would say um, and uh, we were there doing a high school event and the virtual frog dissection was a hit uh, so many students were coming and, and trying it out and really enjoyed it. And, you know, we asked them during that process, like, hey, you know, would, would you like to, how do you feel about dissection in your classroom? Have you done it yet? Um, some, some kids did say, you know, I think dissection is cool. And I would say to them, well, what do you think is cool about it? And oftentimes they would say things like, well, it's just not a textbook or, um, you know, it's just, it's just, I don't know, it's just neat. And then, in equal measure, there were students who were just grossed out by dissection and were just like, this is way better. And those, they almost across the board, the students were very engaged with uh, with the virtual dissection. In fact, 100% of them like that came over to our booth really loved the dissection and said that they would be thrilled to have that as part of their education. And many of them would prefer that instead of the a real frog. Um, there's also virtual rat dissection too. It's offered by a different company called Amantris. Again, it's a it's an app that you can download to your iPad. It's again about five dollars. Same principle, just a rat instead of a frog. It's a CGI image, so no animals harmed in the making of it. Um, so things like that, that that those cool technologies that are very engaging for students of a certain age. Right? It's an iPad. It's really cool. It's hip. It's uh, <laughs> Uh, it really it really draws them in and they're very high educational quality so the advantage of tools like that is that usually your high school dissection is a one-shot deal right your teacher orders you a frog a rat a fetal pig it arrives on your on your desk and then you and a partner or you and a group of students kind of follow the instructions and you do the dissection once and then then that's the end of the class and then you, you go away and you, you never really do it again. Um, if you are really a budding biologist and you want you really want to consolidate your learning, the non-animal alternatives, they can be used over and over and over again ad nauseum. So like it really is a chance to uh, expand on like it your your uh, your learning to um, to repeat so that you get a full understanding 
Uh, and what what's more, I would say is that the things like the iPad, there's more there's more in terms of animal alternatives. It's just these are my favorite of the moment is that the iPad dissections. Um, they're very inclusive for the classroom. So there are some students who understandably you would not want to give scalpels to. Right. So whether whether they're like emotionally troubled or have um, special requirements in the classroom, um, the non-animal alternatives are safe and inclusive. So we had a three-year-old doing the iPad dissection because she knew how to work touchscreens, and you know, her her father was with her. He didn't seem to be upset about the content that she was seeing and he he was like helping her and she she did it and she was three years old and that's not to say that it is doesn't have high educational merit it's just that it was accessible <laughs> okay so um i feel like the non-animal alternatives are extremely accessible they're affordable they're inclusive um they have high educational merit and of course you know that's that's all without even mentioning the an the animal ethics uh arguments. So a lot of the animals used for dissections are procured from companies, they're, they're bought from companies um, that provide dead animals to schools for dissection. And to my knowledge, uh, companies like that are not under any kind of formal regulation or oversight. They're not part of the Canadian Council on Animal Care's oversight program. Okay. Um and the final yeah. question, because uh, uh, I've kept you busy this morning, um, is uh, getting involved. I mean, for me, I, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a teacher. I don't work with animals like this. But I think it's a great mm -hmm. cause. And I think a lot of other people are going to think it's a great cause. So how can sort of the every person get involved in the Animals and Science Policy Institute or make a difference in this kind of work? Sure. So um, we have three different mechanisms for people to get involved. Um, the first is send us a testimonial, like any high school student or even adult who did high school dissection or, you know, has um, encountered animal research or testing in your life, which is a, a lot rarer than people going through high school because most people have done some kind of dissection in high school. Um, send us a testimonial and tell us how that went for you. And especially if you want to make positive change, like, um, tell us your story. We're, we're, we have a section on our website for testimonials that will be coming soon. And um, it's just to really um, put it out there that um, there's a great proportion of the public that really care passionately about this issue, but they're disempowered to do anything about it because, well, to pass my science grade 12, I got to do this dissection, right? Like it, it feels like there's a power imbalance and it's what you have to do to pass high school or your first or second year biology at university. Um, we are a registered non-for-profit, so we're applying for charitable status. Um, our application will be going in soon but uh, we can still accept donations and we are doing a project on um on high school dissection so uh, we'll be going into bc classrooms hopefully and um testing out how well the non-animal alternatives work in terms of how well students meet their learning outcomes uh, we are looking for bc high school science teachers so if you are a high school science teacher and would love to get involved um, you can contact us because we are in the recruitment stage um, you know i'm a i'm a science educator i teach at ubc 
not a science high school teacher, but we will definitely work with you to develop um, a curriculum for the non-animal alternative model so that we can easily implement that in a classroom and see how well the students do. And then, um, yeah, so we, we are, uh, like I said, we're, we're taking donations that we have a PayPal section on our website. And then we'll also be um, recruiting volunteers. So we'll, we'll basically be posting volunteer opportunities because we need to have a kind of a, a debrief we have a, a board meeting tomorrow, and we'll um, we'll be discussing what skill sets we're looking for in volunteers. And so, um, anyone with a passion for this, we're a national organization, so uh, volunteers wouldn't necessarily need to be based in Vancouver or BC. We could take volunteers from elsewhere, especially for things like social media. Um, but yeah, we'll be posting volunteer opportunities on our website. Um, in terms of other things people can do, so at the moment, the, the Canadian Council on Animal Care are, like I said, they're the agency that set and maintains standards for the, uh, the use of animals in science. And from time to time, there's guidelines review and guidelines um, get uh, sent out for what's called widespread review. So at the moment, there's a set of guidelines on the CCAC website, uh, the, the guidelines on animal hus husbandry, which are open for widespread review. So you can go to their website, you can find that guideline, and you can give your feedback. Anyone can log in and do that. Anyone can go to the website and do that. So we really encourage people to learn more about CCAC. Not many people know who they are. To actively get involved in doing guidelines review. So send CCAC your comments. Send them, um, you know, uh, feedback on the guidelines uh, because they're inviting comments. So that's something very proactive that people can do um, to get involved. To learn more about the Animals and Science Policy Institute, their research and solutions, or to get involved, visit them at animalsinscience.org. That's the show for this week. Until next time, this is Michael Howie for Defender Radio reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.